0: This is the best of Fair Mormon on the Mormon Faircast. Michael Otterson, Managing Director of the Public Affairs Department for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, addressed the 17th Annual Fair Mormon Conference held at the Utah Valley Convention Center in Provo, Utah in August 2015. Our first speaker. We've wanted for a long time to have some of the topics addressed that will be hopefully settled or put on the record this morning by Brother Mike R., Michael R. Otterson. Brother Otterson was educated in England, his birthplace, uh, where he completed his formal journalistic training. For 11 years, he worked as a journalist on newspapers in Britain, Australia, and Japan. Since 1976, he has worked in the London, Sydney, and Salt Lake City public affairs offices of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He currently serves as the Managing Director of the Public Affairs with responsibility for public affairs issues of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints worldwide. In his current role as Managing Director, he oversees many of the contemporary concerns facing the church, such as women's issues, religious freedom, and an ever-expanding global church. He's also the masterful architect of the beautiful one-sentence response to the Book of Mormon musical. And with that, we would like to welcome Brother Otterson to the stand.
1: Good morning, and uh, thank you. This is a wonderful conference. It's been great the last uh, couple of days to sit with a lot of bright people with Great questions. The list of speakers has been very impressive, and it's encouraging to see how Fair Mormon has grown in the past few years. Among the uh, the rich assortment of topics in these past two days of presentations, I've thought carefully about what I should and could contribute that's related to my work in Church public affairs that will also be helpful to an inquiring audience. Well, first, a little bit of background. This is um, somewhat of a personal nature, so please forgive me for that, but it has a bearing on what I'll say later. I'm a, a convert to the church, and in my particular line of work, I found that to be an advantage. I was 19 when I joined the church in England after a rather intense and lengthy engagement with lots of missionaries. Before I read the church, I read everything, everything I could get my hands on, and my first hint at uh, what um, would be the controversial nature of our faith came from my visit to the large city library in Liverpool. Now, when I mention Liverpool as my birthplace, I'm frequently asked whether I knew the Beatles. Well, the answer is no, not personally. Although my wife, as a teenage girl, did once knock on Paul McCartney's front door with the excuse that she wanted to use the bathroom. How many teenage girls did that? She was admitted, actually, but sadly he wasn't home. But in the church, Liverpool is more importantly known as the landing place for the first missionaries in this dispensation outside of North America. Heber C. Kimball having leapt to the dock as his ship, the Garrick, moored there in 1837. And later in 1851, Franklin D. Richards compiled the first edition of the Pearl of Great Price in Liverpool and the city became the publishing center for the Millennial Star. 130 years after Heber C. Kimball's leap to the dock on the River Mersey, I went to the main library in that same city to see what I could find about Mormons. I found more than 30 volumes that either dealt with the subject in detail or in extracts. But if memory serves, all but two of those volumes had a negative tone or were outright attacks. So I therefore became familiar, even before I was a member of the church, of the nature and the tone of criticism of the church. And the fact that I'm here suggests that I didn't find those arguments more persuasive than the Book of Mormon itself, not intellectually, and especially not when matched against a powerful spiritual witness of Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. Now fast forward to April 19th, 1970 when I was living in Australia with my new bride, when a dear patriarch laid his hands on my head to give me a patriarchal blessing, his words included this phrase, you will be given opportunities to defend the gospel. I was always interested in that choice of words, defend, not preach or proclaim or teach. What was it that the patriarch saw that I didn't see at that time in choosing the word defend? One month later, my wife and I were at the temple in New Zealand where, since I was now an elder, we could be sealed. In the temple where we stayed for a week, one of the veteran temple workers approached me. You're a journalist, aren't you? he asked. And the question surprised me because I wasn't aware that I had mentioned that to anyone. But he then directed me rather forcefully to listen very carefully to the language of the male initiatory ordinance that had to do with defending truth. Now obviously I won't mention those words here, but I think of those words every time I do initiatory ordinances. Fast forward again to 1974, back in England where I was the business editor of the Liverpool Daily Post. One day I took a call from President Royden Derrick who was the president then of the England Leeds mission which covered all of the northern part of England he was in hull which is a city on the northeast coast almost directly laterally east of liverpool and he'd seen a critical letter about the church in a local newspaper from a minister of another faith and he knew my profession and he wondered if i had a, a suggestion on how it might be handled and i I took a few minutes to write a, a kind, conciliatory letter to the paper and included an invitation to anyone who wanted to know what we really teach to come and see. The letter was duly printed and although I didn't know it, I had just embarked on a journey that would immerse me in church public affairs for the next 40 plus years. Two years later, I was invited by the church to manage the newly opened public affairs office in London And three years after that, I returned to Australia at church invitation to establish a public affairs office for the Pacific area based in Sydney. And then for the past 24 years, I've been here at church headquarters. Well, what has changed in those 40 years? Less than we might think in terms of the questions being asked today. In fact, many of them are pretty similar to questions that confronted me in the Liverpool Library, which were the same as those raised in Joseph Smith's day. The veracity of the Book of Mormon, the witnesses, the translation process, the nature of revelation, the personal history of Joseph Smith. Perhaps it shouldn't have, but I admit that it mildly surprised me in the wake of publication on LDS.org of a series of in-depth essays on various topics that so many faithful members expressed surprise at discovering some things like multiple accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision for the first time in the lifelong membership. Since I was reading that readily available stuff in 1967, even before I was a member of the church, I had erroneously imagined that most members read the same things. For example, the improvement era, the forerunner to the ensign carried a detailed article on eight contemporary accounts of the First Vision in its April 1970 edition. In other ways, a great deal has changed in the past few decades, and I I don't just mean world-class historical scholarship and the immense amount of research material and resources that are now at our fingertips, such as the Joseph Smith Papers and insightful work by Some brilliant young and emerging historical scholars, some of whom we heard from yesterday and will hear again from today. I refer primarily to the environment created by the internet, and to social media in particular, which has brought both challenges and opportunities that we all recognize. And for public affairs, the explosion of voices, both pro and con, have made our work demanding and exciting all at the same time. For instance, I love the Church's passionate commitment to religious freedom as a universal human right, and I applaud its increasing transparency, evidence again this week in the announcement of the latest volume of the Joseph Smith Papers. Now, since we're often on the cutting edge of public issues, I'd like to give you an insight today on how church public affairs works And then I'd like to share some perspectives on some much-discussed topics that will illustrate that working process. I've chosen to call this discussion On the Record because I think some things have not been said clearly enough or that they have been overlooked or misconstrued. I won't be breaking any new ground today on such perennial topics as race or polygamy or other questions on which there are more competent speakers I will try to leave 10 to 15 minutes at the end of uh, the period for questions and I invite all of you to write your questions on a card and pass it to uh, an usher in the next 30 minutes or so. Please focus your questions on matters directly related to public affairs so I have a chance of responding somewhat intelligently. So no, I don't know where the 10 Lost Tribes are Although I did have a bishop once who told me that he got a call from a member at 1 o'clock in the morning who said, Bishop, I'm going through the scriptures here. This is 1 o'clock in the morning. I'm going through the scriptures here, and I'm wondering if you can tell me where the 10 lost tribes are. (laughs) He was a baker. He had to be up at 4 a.m. His rather dry response was, I presume they're all in bed. (laughs) Public affairs work of the church is overseen by the church's public affairs committee, which is chaired by a member of the Twelve. It's a first presidency committee, but it's chaired by a member of the Twelve. reports directly to the first presidency. Other general authorities or general officers include the senior president of the Seventy, the presiding bishop, the church's legal counsel, one of the female general officers, and an additional Seventy who serves as executive director of the department. The executive director works particularly closely with me, especially on strategic planning matters. And in addition, several senior public affairs staff, including myself, attend the weekly committee meetings. Now the first thing I want to put on record is this. Public affairs does not have its own agenda, independent from the brethren. I work on a daily basis with the member of the 12 and the executive director, and in addition to regular meetings twice a week with the member of the 12, we talk every day, sometimes several times. With the executive director, I make presentations to the full quorum of the 12 monthly and receive direction from them. Sometimes a member of the staff with a particular specialty makes a presentation and receives counsel. And I mention this because we sometimes have rocks thrown at us by some bloggers who love to postulate as to why public affairs does this or that. One <laughs> blogger even referred recently to public affairs as a rogue department, which would be news to the brethren. <laughs> so Newsflash, we don't freelance. Sadly, the insight and understanding of some who love to write volumes of commentary seems often in inverse proportion to the amount of words they write. Perhaps it's simply easier to target public affairs because because it seems less disrespectful than criticizing church leaders. If so, we're honored to take those slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. A thick skin is a prerequisite for public affairs employment It makes me think of uh, that wonderful verse in Acts when the high priest and his council were attempting to intimidate Peter and his apostles and had them beaten up. Verse 41 of Acts 5 says, And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And the next verse notes almost parenthetically, And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach and preach. Jesus Christ. No member of the public affairs staff would last long if he or she issued a statement on behalf of the church that had not been approved. Of course, we frequently suggest a response to a breaking issue, but the brethren are not shy in editing or rejecting those statements or writing their own versions. In addition, The member of the Twelve who chairs the Public Affairs Committee will confer with other members of the Twelve or with the First Presidency on major issues. Our task is to find language that most accurately reflects what's in the Brethren's minds. There's no place for private agendas on the part of staff. I'm taking more than a moment on this point because it's extraordinarily important. This audience probably understands, but let me give you an example of what happens when it isn't understood. Earlier this year, the church held a news conference to call on the Utah legislature to pass a bill that treated religious rights and gay rights in a balanced and fair way. Three apostles attended that news conference, and Elder Elton Perry later attended the bill signing with the governor and other community leaders. Some people, actually challenged the validity of the church's message because there were, quote, only three members of the Twelve, and not all of them, plus the First Presidency. I wondered if they thought that those apostles were rogue also. (laughs) This so reminds me of the Savior's critique of blind guides who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. What about other communications, for instance, on Mormon Newsroom? Well, Newsroom and the department's Facebook and YouTube channels are among the primary communications media we use to disseminate significant news and latest developments. Much of what is posted there deals with routine news stories, but even these can't be posted without approval from church correlation which has the responsibility to ensure that all church communications are doctrinally sound and consistent. Because of the nature of our work, correlation gives us high priority when we're dealing with breaking news or issuing a commentary on a significant topic. But again, there's a check and balance system that should give members of the church a high level of comfort that what they read on newsroom has been well vetted. Are we infallible? Of course not. Might we occasionally make mistakes or fail to choose exactly the right word in a statement or interview? Assuredly, yes, but you can be sure that we know who runs the church and the respect we have for the established processes. Now, despite the words my patriarch chose when I he said I would uh, have opportunities to defend the gospel, there are words I prefer to use other than defend if all we ever play is a defensive game, the most we can hope for is a draw. While it can be extraordinarily difficult when under attack or critique from unfriendly voices, it's important that we try not to sound defensive. We do better to explain or promote an idea, a concept or a principle. Scott made reference to the Book of Mormon musical uh, response. When the Book of Mormon musical first surfaced, despite its blasphemy, crudeness and bad language, we opted for a non-defensive statement that taught a principle. Our much quoted response was, the Book of Mormon musical may attempt to entertain audiences for an evening, but the Book of Mormon as a volume of scripture will change people's lives forever by bringing them closer to Christ. As many of you know, we even took out ads in the show's playbill, inviting people who had seen the show to now read the book. Now, I have to pause for a moment with a disclaimer. I'd love to take credit for that statement, but all I did was say, that's perfect, when a member of the staff came with that draft. (laughs) So I claim no responsibility. Lyman, one of my staff members is here. I believe you wrote that draft, didn't you? Give him a round of applause. <laughs> and I have to say, Lyman is about the most modest person that you'll ever meet, and he's now thoroughly embarrassed that I made that comment. It isn't easy to avoid sounding defensive when things we love are, are belittled. This applies also to critiques of the brethren themselves. Personally, I view habitual criticism of the brethren as one of the most pernicious of pastimes. So let me spend a moment on this. I'll use the term brethren because this is an LDS audience, and you know what that means—the general authorities of the church, and in particular the First Presidency and the Twelve. Um, but I try to avoid that term when talking to secular media because it sounds strange, even antiquated to non ears, and I usually opt for the term church leadership in that context. If memory serves, I think the first time I encountered an accusing finger pointed at the Brethren was from an English journalist who I'd invited to meet with a visiting apostle while I was managing the church's London Public Affairs office. He asked me how we could justify leaders of the church flying transatlantic jets when Jesus used a donkey. (laughs) My response to him was that as soon as they invent a transatlantic donkey, we'd be happy to use it. (laughs) Now that may not have been original. I can no longer remember whether I borrowed it from something I'd heard, but it did seem to address the absurdity of the question. I can hardly believe it when I hear people question the motives of the brethren for the work they do or when they imply that there's somehow some monetary reward or motive. Let me share the reality. Not all the brethren have been businessmen, but most have had extraordinarily successful careers by the time they're called to be an apostle. As President Spencer W. Kimball once pointed out, the ability to lead people and lead an organization is a more than helpful attribute in a church of millions of people, especially when combined with spiritual depth and a real rich understanding of the gospel. Because several have been highly successful in business careers, when they become apostles, their allowances may literally be less than a tithe on what they previously earned. Some of the brethren have been educators. Elder Scott was a nuclear physicist. Elder Nelson, a heart surgeon. Several were highly successful lawyers. Right now, we have three former university presidents in the Twelve. President Boyd K. Packer was also an educator by profession, although in his spare time and in his earlier days, he loved to carve beautiful things out of wood. That sounds curiously related to another scripturally honored profession, that of a carpenter. Can you imagine what it would be like to be called to the Twelve in most cases, you've already had a successful career. You know you'll continue to serve the church in some volunteer capacity, but you've begun to think of your future retirement. The first presidency in the 12, of course, don't retire. Neither are they released. With their call comes the sure knowledge that they will work every day for the rest of their lives, even if they live into their 90s, until they literally drop and their minds and bodies give out. Their work day begins early, and it doesn't end at 5 p.m. The 12 get Mondays off. Those Mondays are frequently spent preparing for the rest of the week. If they have a, a weekend assignment, they'll often travel on a Friday afternoon. Periodically, even though in their 80s, they face the grueling schedule of international speaking conferences and leadership responsibilities. Now, what about when they're home? I have the cell phone numbers of most of the brethren because I sometimes have to call them in the evening, on weekends, or when they're out and about. I'm not naive enough to think that I'm the only church officer to do so, so even their downtime is peppered with interruptions. I invariably begin those calls by apologizing for interrupting them at home. I have never once been rebuked for calling. They are invariably kind and reassuring, even early in the morning or late at night. The primary time off each year is from the end of the mission president seminar in June to the end of July, and while this time is meant as a break, most of the brethren use this time to turn their thoughts, among other things, to October General Conference and preparation of their remarks. During Christmas break, they do the same for April Conference. Every one of them takes extraordinary care in deciding on a topic and crafting their messages. That process weighs heavily on them for months as they refine draft after draft. This isn't a schedule that you'd wish on anyone. Yet they bear it with grace and find joy for some overwhelmingly important reasons. Their testimony and commitment to be a witness of the Savior in all the world and their desire to strengthen his children everywhere. They would be the very first to acknowledge their own faults or failings, just as we can readily point to the apostles in the New Testament and see imperfect people. As I read the Gospels and the Book of Acts, or the various letters written by the apostles to the various groups of members scattered through the Mediterranean, I get a glimpse of extraordinary men, men with individual faults, certainly. Yet I choose not to view Peter through a critical lens that dwells on the impetuous elements of his nature or the wavering soul who failed to affirm that he knew the Christ. I see him more in the winter of his life, having weathered trials and storms to become one of the towering figures of biblical history, whose name and accomplishments have endured for two millennia. The same can be said for many others of the ancient apostles, perhaps especially Paul, whose life transformed him from persecutor to persecuted. And so today, because my testimony tells me that the gospel's been restored, I see the senior brethren in the same way. Yes, they are individual mortal men, but the Lord has given them, not me, the mantle to lead the church and make the tough decisions. Now, I'm not lionizing the brethren. I'm not overawed because I've shaken the hand of an apostle, but I do sustain them with all my heart, and I have a, a quiet and reassuring confidence born of personal experience and exposure to their counsels, that the church is in good hands. Certain it is that the brethren have to wrestle with big questions. Now, let me turn now to some of those. And since I'm about halfway through, I have time to address address perhaps three or four before we break for questions. And since it's become such a big question, I'll talk a little about the emergence of gay rights and what it's meant for the church, especially as it relates to religious freedom. I'll also talk a little about dissent and disciplinary councils and the in-depth church essays that are now appearing in Aliestadog. And I'll end with an explanation of what principles shape and drive our messaging from public affairs. One advantage in having worked for church public affairs for so long is that one gains a long-term perspective that comes with institutional memory and that sometimes can be valuable. Certainly you don't have to be very old to remember a time when some of the language used in the church to describe homosexual behavior was intemperate, even harsh by today's standards. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But the fundamentals haven't changed. Sex outside marriage is morally wrong by God's law. Sex with a person of the same sex is wrong by that same standard. The doctrine hasn't changed, but our way of addressing it has changed significantly. Most people here will understand the word presentism, Brittany Chapman referred to this indirectly yesterday as she talked about uh, polygamy in the 19th century. It's defined by Webster's as an attitude toward the past dominated by present-day attitudes and experiences. Presentism is a common problem. It's so easy to dig into the past and find a statement that reflects the norms of the times in which it was stated and then incorrectly apply it to our day. Is there any one of us who wouldn't like to unsay or unwrite something we once said that in today's parlance seems at best inartful and at worst offensive? Unquestionably, there have been uh, more careful and considerate choices of language in the past few years as the Church has engaged with the pro-gay rights movement. As I said, this doesn't reflect a change in a doctrinal understanding of the purposes of sex, marriage, and family, What constitutes sin, but it does reflect a deeper understanding and consciousness among church leadership. While acknowledging that it would be a mistake to assume that the brethren were ignorant of these trials years ago, I'm thinking particularly of Elder Quentin L. Cook of the Twelve, who was stake president of, in of all places, San Francisco, in the 80s when the AIDS epidemic broke out. I was with Elder Cook when we interviewed him on camera about this topic. And it was clear that he was deeply emotionally touched by his experiences in helping several gay members with AIDS navigate their last days. Likewise, I've heard others among the brethren describe the pain they feel for families, including gay family members who have been torn apart while trying to navigate this extremely difficult issue. As same-sex attraction has become more talked about in society, our language has changed in order to speak to an evolving audience even as our standards of chastity remain constant. One might say the same for cohabitation before marriage of heterosexual couples. We don't like it, we discourage it, we teach young people chastity before marriage, but we also understand the reality that most of the world has different ever-changing standards or values and a strident voice from the church is going to do nothing to change behavior. Toward the end of the 2012 presidential election campaign, public affairs prepared a website that we called Mormonsandgays.org. The site included several interviews with members of the Twelve, and it had the most intense scrutiny by the Brethren before it was launched. Frankly, the website had more than one purpose, In the heat of an election campaign in which a member of the church was his party's nominee for the presidency, we thought it likely that the gay issue would be dragged into the campaign at some point and we would be confronted with all of the misrepresentation and distortion and different perspectives that we had dealt with ever since Proposition 8 in 2008. But the website was also an opportunity to recognize the experiences of some other LGBT or same-sex attracted members. In some Latter-day Saint homes, when teens had come out as gay to their parents, the reaction had been anything but compassionate or reflective of a mutual search for understanding. In extreme cases, young people were ordered out of their homes. Being homeless and destitute made such young people prey to drug pushes, prostitution, and other degrading experiences and in some cases, even to suicide. I'm unaware of any church leader who countenanced such actions, but awareness of some of these problems was not universal among leadership, and certainly not among our membership at large. Mormonsengays.org, which was carefully scrutinized by the Brethren before it launched, was designed to address that by encouraging parents and other family members to embrace their children, brothers or sisters, while not condoning immoral behavior. This issue remains a difficult one. The church is now working to further develop mormonsgays.org and version 2.0 is scheduled for completion and launch early next year. Meanwhile, the topic leads us naturally to a related one and that is the church's position on religious freedom vis-a-vis LGBT rights. Even as Proposition 8, as early as Proposition 8, the church said publicly that it did not oppose extending rights to LGBT people covering such areas as housing, employment, probate, hospital visits, and so on, that posed no threat to the family. The problem it had was with efforts to redefine marriage. Even at that early date, I remember the Brethren opining strongly that legalizing gay marriage would bring multiple challenges to religious freedom. In that, they were remarkably prescient. If you aren't aware of the great cultural clash that has arisen between LGBT rights proponents and many faith groups over the perceived threat to religious rights, I can assure you that it's becoming one of the great social issues of the day. It's beyond my scope today to dig more deeply into this topic than I need to, but even a casual read, of what many LGBT advocates are saying about religious rights is sobering. The ink was barely dry on the recent decision by the Boy Scouts of America's National Executive Council to allow gay scout leaders when the Human Rights Campaign, which is one of the major LGBT advocacy groups, was saying that it was a helpful first step, meaning they won't be satisfied until all churches are also forced to accept gay scout leaders in their troops. Even before the scout issue arose, many on that side of the debate had been clamoring for removing university accreditation from religious colleges who failed to meet the LGBT definition of what is or isn't socially acceptable. And removing tax exemption from churches has been another agenda item emerging recently. The church's response to this has been a model of restraint. It's been reflective of reasonableness and Christ-like behavior. While not yielding an inch on our Father's plan for his children and the purpose of our life here on earth, including how sexuality is to be expressed, the Church has recognized the legitimacy of LGBT claims to fair housing, employment, and other services, such as those I've mentioned. And further, without the Church's public call last January in a news conference for equitable treatment of both religion and LGBT rights, Utah would not have the laws it has today protecting the rights of both. Going forward, the church will continue to urge for this kind of balance. It isn't easy for all of our members to understand this. There are some whose views carry a tone that we heard many years ago and who believe that any gesture of compassion toward LGBT people is tantamount to condoning sin, even though simple attraction itself is not a sin. Others seem to want to reshape the church into whatever the latest politically correct social convention says it should be. Consequently, much internal teaching needs to be done on this topic, especially among our youth and millennial members, that is, our young adults. Wisely, the brethren will chart a course that adheres to the doctrine of the church while emulating Christ's inclusiveness and love for all people. Can members have their own views on this topic and still say stay faithful to the church? And that's a question we hear often, and it arises from a number of different scenarios. Can a member be a Democrat and a good Mormon? That one makes me smile because If the members who ask it could travel to some countries of the world and meet faithful members of the church who belong to their national communist parties, I think their blood pressure might be permanently damaged. (laughs) Can I believe in women's rights and be a good Mormon? Can I think that our hymnals might benefit from a good revision if I sometimes think that Every minute of our three-hour block isn't entirely inspirational. Am I on the road to apostasy? (laughs) Now, I don't mean to be flippant because I know that some questions are more important than others. All I can tell you is how I approach this subject personally. I've never found the church to be an intellectual straitjacket. We have an enormously diverse membership. I've spent time with members of the church on every continent, where we have units. One of the most thrilling aspects to being a Latter-day Saint is the sense that we belong to a diverse but unified global family. Now, because I'm British, I admittedly joke about the French from time to time. It's kind of an obligatory thing that goes with British citizenship. Actually, I've never forgiven them for backing the wrong side in the American Revolutionary War. And and of course the French respond in kind about the English. But if I'm on a plane and sitting next to a French Latter-day Saint, I feel an immediate bond. National and cultural differences evaporate. I have far more in common with that person than with one of my own non-LDS countrymen who may have grown up in my hometown and attended the same school. As a Latter-day Saint, I know instantly that my newly met French acquaintance and I share the most important core values and experiences, and we have the same broad aspirations for this life and for the next. I am content to rest on the assurance that as Latter-day Saints, we are in reality no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens in a kingdom that traverses all national boundaries and cultures. Am I interested in making sure that my French seat companion comports precisely with my views in every nuanced interpretation of how to live his life or her life? Do I insist that we both must be on exactly the same point in our spiritual journey? Or do I, like the Lord, allow room for personal interpretation, growth, and understanding? It's only when my friend begins to insist that I interpret everything his way or that he suggests the Brethren are misleading the members, or that he elevates himself to be more than my friend but now my uninvited teacher, that I may worry about his direction. If he tells me about his blogs and public demonstrations to prove the Brethren are wrong and resists counsel, I might expect that church leaders would counter that influence even if they would prefer not to. If kindness and gentle persuasion and love and prove unsuccessful, I would fear for his eternal future. But I would not deny him the right to believe differently. While I love the diversity in the church, I don't believe that ultimately diversity trumps unity. If you're not one, you're not mine. To my certain knowledge, the First Presidency in 12 do not direct the outcome. Of disciplinary councils and studiously avoid doing so. Indeed, as the court of final appeal, the first presidency cannot do so. They must remain independent. Church policy is that decisions rest with bishops and state presidents, both as to whether to hold such councils and what the outcome might be. Of course, state presidents may confer with Area 70s up their priesthood line for counsel about process but not about decisions and outcomes. There's been speculation recently that disciplinary councils or invitations to a a sit down with the bishop have coincided and therefore have the appearance of being centrally directed. This isn't the case, and there is a simple plausible explanation that requires no mental gymnastics to understand at all. General authorities, including all of the quorums of 70, come to church headquarters every six months for training right before general conference. Over the years, these training sessions cover a wide diversity of topics. And if how to hold disciplinary councils in accordance with church processes is one of those topics, which it recently was, it isn't surprising that as the training works its way down to the stake and ward level, some Ward and stake leaders may feel better prepared to engage with members whom they feel need counsel. This might especially occur at a time when some members are publicly campaigning for changes counter to church policy or doctrine. Frankly, I don't know whether there's been any increase in such counseling, and if there has, whether I've correctly identified the reason. But looking for a conspiracy behind every hint of change isn't healthy and is rarely accurate. I promised a word about uh, the in-depth essays on LDS.org that address subjects that some members have found challenging. And frankly, I don't have much to say about these. The feedback we received on LDS.org suggests that some members feel the essay should have been placed in a more prominent position and preceded by a major announcement. Other members think that they got more attention than they deserved. Overall, I think there's some merit in the argument that they should have been more prominent from the beginning, but there is more context to this. Certainly several of them received significant press coverage when published. Those who follow church developments closely will have seen an increasing emphasis on study and learning in the home, on Sabbath day observance that incorporates such learning into our daily lives, and an increasingly flexible teaching curriculum that draws on many resources, including these essays, for content and support. It's the intent of church leaders that these essays be more than just a one-read experience in LDS.org, but rather that their content and principles work their way into the larger tapestry of learning, especially for our youth. So there are no surprises of members five, ten years from now. Much discussion preceded the publication of these essays, including a determination about their length. At one point, 50-page essays, or even longer, were contemplated and some were drafted with extensive footnotes. But it was acknowledged that few rank-and-file members would wade through such heavy work, other than scholars who were already familiar with the substance of these issues. So an alternative was considered, a brief two- or three-page commentary but this was felt to be inadequate and failed to meet the main criterion of transparency. The results of these deliberations is what you currently have on LDS.org, and generally these essays have been well received. Although highly competent LDS scholars prepared the initial drafts, they had extensive review by church history staff and other scholars. Their review was followed by a rigorous reading for accuracy and balance by the Twelve before approval by the First Presidency. Now, let me wrap up, and then we'll take some questions. Earlier, I mentioned the importance of not being too defensive. I hope I haven't sounded overly defensive today. You may find this a little surprising coming from someone whose profession is public relations, but I'd like to, to leave you with a final thought. Elder Neil A. Maxwell also, by the way, a former chairman of the Public Affairs Committee, used to talk about what he called the central dilemma of public affairs. Do we let our light shine so that men may see our good works, or does that risk looking like doing alms before men for the praise of the world? Well, today we have an additional dilemma. The core function of the Public Affairs Department is to build relationships with opinion leaders whose influence can either help or hinder the church's mission. We can do much good in society with that objective. It leads to such things as engagement with other churches, with political leaders of different stripes, with LGBT and other community leaders and many others. At the same time, the church from ancient times has essentially been countercultural, which means that it often pushed back against social conventions and established institutions. Jesus talked a lot about sheep, but he never acted like one. He challenged social norms. He never... He uh, confronted the establishment with um, associated with people who polite society rejected. The apostles, too, fearlessly challenge convention time after time in order to teach gospel truths. So how do we balance these two seemingly competing principles? of Building relationships in the secular world with those outside the church who see things differently and yet pushing back against growing secularism and disaffiliation with organized religion. Well, the answer to these and other difficult questions is found in following Jesus Christ in every circumstance. This is our principal mandate, our prime directive. Our church bears the Savior's name. It is his church. The teachings are his, and we try to model our lives on what Jesus taught. Our messages from the church, therefore, must always be crafted with that in mind. And the church's actions must always be consistent with what it says. In every decision that we make and every recommendation we take forward, we try to keep that in mind. What would the Savior do? Those associated with fair Mormon in particular have an obligation to engage with a kind of language which the Savior would identify with and avoid polemical confrontational tactics. We've identified six six simple principles that rather than defend, Assert what we stand for, and they are these. We have faith in God, strive to live the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and embrace God's plan for his children, bringing joy into our lives and the lives of others. Number two, we are strong supporters of the family, defenders of strong, enduring enduring marriages and childbearing, and of raising well-educated children with high moral values. Three, we value and defend religious freedom, including freedom, I'm sorry, we value and defend freedom, including freedom of religion, respect, individual agency and moral choices, freedom to worship and freedom to share our faith. Four, we hold and try to live by strong moral values, including personal honesty and trustworthiness and other Christ-like attributes. Number five, we, sh- we serve others, including those in our own faith and those not of our faith. Charity, or love of our fellow men and women, is a source of joy. And six, we strive to demonstrate through the redemptive power of the gospel that lives can change for the better. We think of this in terms of faith, repentance, and the atonement. Such are the issues and challenges that face us today. Thank you for listening. I think I'll be happy to take some of your questions now for the next few minutes.
0: Now, just so you know, we got so many questions. What we had to do, full disclosure, is we sorted through the questions and tried to get representative questions for each category because there's just too many. Otherwise, we'd be here till noon just with this one thing. So uh, so here's kind of the representative, and here's the actual more. But we're going to give them all to him so he'll get every question.
1: So I'm going to try to relate. These are the ones that you recommend.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh, we could be here all day. Here's another one that didn't <clears throat>
1: process. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to respond to those that particularly touch on public affairs matters, of course. And the one thing that's a little different with me responding to questions is that I'm a church spokesman. So whatever I say will be immediately attributed to the church. So I'm going to be quite careful in, in what I say. <clears throat> I don't get a chance to edit Lyman might help me. As an assertive and capable woman in the church, I have experienced marginalization in my local unit. What can you share to reassure women that the brethren are aware of and care about the continuing marginalization of women in the church? Um, What can I say to reassure you? Only that the place of more than half of the women of the church in the church is a matter of huge importance to the Brethren. I sit on uh, one particular committee that looks at this frequently, but I'm also in many, many other meetings. And there is a momentum inside the church organization to address what appear to be inequities, which I find incredibly encouraging. You've seen some small measure of these and things like Photographs of the women's presidencies in the conference center and some other things, placement of the women leaders in the conference center, a general conference. But there's so, so much more going on. All I can say to you is be patient. It takes a while, especially for things to trickle down to the local ward level, but have confidence that it, it will happen. When dealing with sensitive issues such as women in the priesthood or race, do the brethren consult with women and women and persons of color for insights on how to respond to the media members in the world? The answer is absolutely yes. If not already addressed, uh, what do you do with mass media that will not report your articles or or take out of context parts to slur and adjust to their agendas? That's a good question. Um, one of the great things that's happened in recent years, and I mentioned this at the beginning, is the change in the way information is communicated. <clears throat> Back in the old days, you know, we would write a press statement, and we'd put it out and give it to the media. And then we'd look at the abbreviated uh, version that would eventually appear, maybe, and the context in which it was placed, and we'd be very frustrated because we were entirely dependent on the media, first of all, the, the reporter's understanding, and the headline writer's understanding, and the editor's decision on where to place that story on the page, and who else they talk to. And that can be very challenging. And for most of my working life, that's been what we've had to deal with. And then along came the internet, and along came social media, and isn't that great? Because now we can say whatever we want to say, and it's visible to everyone. So, Newsroom is a great um, example of that. We, we don't send out press releases anymore. I don't know why anyone sends out press releases anymore. We simply publish a statement on Newsroom, and then we wait for the phone to ring. And, and, it, and, it, and it does. Um, the, the, the media, not only the local media, but national media, especially religion writers, follow um, Newsroom, they have it on their feeds, and as soon as we post anything, they, they will pick it up. And then, of course, they can still interpret, they can still talk to other people, of course they will, but at least what we're saying is on the record, and it's clear. We even have a little segment on Newsroom, if you're not all familiar with it, <coughs> called Getting It Right. Um, we used to call it mistakes in the news, but that seemed a little defensive. Um, when if somebody made a mistake, we'd you know we'd we'd correct them publicly. Uh, I remember w- one reporter who no longer works for the particular TV station uh, in a particular exchange with us said, "Now if I don't do this right, am I going to be in that column?" And Our response was, "Absolutely, yeah." Um, <clears throat> But we changed that to getting it right. And what we try to do now is we look for really great examples of reporters that go the extra mile, not, not just writing favorable stories, but those who really try to get the balance and the nuances correct. So yeah, it is an issue, but it's much better now than it used to be, even though you've also got you know, the echo chamber of negative blogs that will always dissect everything we say and you know, read more into it. But that's just life today with social media. It's a good question. Why do some of the church essays have no byline? That was discussed, but it's important that when these um, essays are published, that people see them as having the imprimatur of the church and not the work of an individual scholar. Um, And the the sense was that if someone's byline goes on there, I mean, I already told you what happens when only three members of the 12 go to a press conference. Can you imagine what it would be like? Well, that essay doesn't mean anything. You know, where's President Monson's name on that? So uh, it's important, I think, that they're presented in a way that that looks like and is reflective of the church's uh, leadership. How does the allowing of gay marriage infringe on our religious freedom if the Supreme Court has was expressly clear that we can retain our rights? Um, Boy, this is a you know I could talk for an hour on this topic, several hours, because it's very complex. As I already mentioned, we are already seeing the rise of cries for uh, curtailing religious freedom in such areas as uh, accreditation of religious colleges, of um, tax exemption. Um, No one is suggesting that at some point um, pastors or ministers of churches who don't agree with it will have to perform gay marriages themselves. That really, we have a constitutional protection that prevents that. It's the ancillary issues that are the challenge, and we track this very carefully. And you particularly see across the country now in the drive for what the LGBT community refers to as public accommodations, uh, that uh, that that is constantly clashing with religious conscience. Um, we are, I think, in a A good and proper place with this issue. There are some churches and our brethren and sisters in other churches who take a very strong view of these kind of things and refuse to budge one inch on LGBT rights. Um, There are others, as I indicated, who, who want to go the whole way and let social norms drive their policies and doctrine. We're in a very even place. If you haven't read it in detail, I strongly encourage you to go back and look on newsroom at the January 27th news conference when we talked about fairness for all because we articulated with three different members of the Twelve and a sister leader, Sister Marriott. We articulated precisely where the church stands on, on that issue. But religious freedom is going to be the next great battle Please report the members of the Public Affairs Council and comment on the potential strength the Council could obtain with a second woman present. Well, I, I mentioned that we have senior staff there, including a senior uh, woman staff member, director, who is very capable. And I was in a meeting just the other day um, from the, with the uh, Priesthood Executive Committee. There were six women in that meeting, all of them very senior. Um, so I think the brethren try as much as possible to embrace uh, women's voices, and uh, one of the things that I did in in um, my own capacity as Managing Director of Public Affairs is that I established what we call a women's outreach group. We have about eight women on that group. They are all highly professional, faithful, seasoned women who um, address some of these issues, draft recommendations, and so on. Interestingly, the chairwoman of that group approached me recently and said, I think we need a couple of men on this group. We've got to, we've got to try to balance this. So um, We don't typically talk about the names of the members on the Public Affairs Council because the minute we do that, then they start getting letters from people. You know, it just becomes unmanageable. But I, can tell, I think I told you what the offices are that they hold. I can tell you that Aldo Christofferson chairs that committee because he's been publicly involved in a number of events. Um, Some conspiratorial ex mormons speculate about ideological factions within the Quorum of the Twelve, such as uh, a Packer faction or an Oaks faction. Can you comment on the diversity and unity of mind among the brethren? That's going to have to be the last question. I'd love to go through these others. These are great. (laughs) There are no factions among the Twelve. I have been uh, in those meetings enough to see the diversity of opinions and different perspectives Aired and thoroughly talked through um, and my experience is that unless the brethren are united on something then the issue just doesn't move forward they always go for um, for unity, complete unity which is you know, what you would expect in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints thank you so much for your time, I've really enjoyed being here today, enjoy the rest of the conference
0: Thank you for listening to The Best of Fair Mormon on the Mormon Faircast. This has been a presentation of Fair Mormon. This content does not necessarily represent the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. For more information on this production of, or Fair Mormon, please visit fairmormon.org. Please subscribe to our podcast and iTunes under the name Mormon Faircast. Thank you for listening.